and my first meeting with this professor, Dr. Amon Milner, I walked in with this like huge prototype and I, he had worked on the scratch team at MIT, which is a kid's coding language that's used by like 40 million kids. So I, I kind of walked in to show him what I had built. He was like, who's this business student who spent three months building an Arduino prototype? Hello, and welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Today's guest is an all-star startup founder and my good friend, Brianne Leeming, founder and CEO of education technology company, Unruly Studios. Bri and I met organizing a conference together at McGill called Ampersand, which we talk about in a little bit as our startup training. We both ended up doing grad school in Boston, and at the same time, we both launched education companies. Brie now runs a team of 12 at Unruly, where they've created a product called Splats, which are these durable, programmable floor buttons that light up and make sounds, and kids can code the Splats with their own rules to play games like relay races, whack-a-mole, and dance routines. The idea is that you're learning to code while running around and having a good time. Splats are the first tool like this on the market, and they're already in 800 schools and counting. Today, Brie and I sit down to talk about how she got to where she is. She shares a ton of great insight, like what an MBA can do for you, how to attract the best team members, how to find your husband in one month, kidding, sort of, and how playing sports from a young age helps you build that mental muscle to keep going. Even with all her accomplishments, Brianne is super down to earth and just a wonderful person to talk to. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Brie. Thank you for having me, Jane. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Let's start at the tippy top um, and talk about young Brie. So you grew up in New Hampshire. What do you remember about growing up, um, you know, be it with your family restaurant or playing lots of sports it could be related to unruly or not um oh wow yes so New Hampshire was I mean I grew up in a really great town Hanover New Hampshire it's a college town where Dartmouth is and um my family owns a restaurant on the main street called Murphy's on the Green so lots of memories there it was like our second home I have three siblings um and yeah, I started working there when I was 16. So just so many memories there, both my first job and everything there. And then I, the other piece was that I was just always an athlete and really loved school, actually. So all those things, I was, um, I was a gymnast for 10 years up until high school. And then I switched into all kinds of different things. So I did lacrosse, field hockey, and then ice hockey as well. Um, and lots of, lots of pond hockey. I remember as well. (laughs) Wow. So you were busy in high school. I was busy. Yeah. That year, I remember senior year having so much going on because I was doing the three sports and working during school. So you're right. I was very busy. Um, I don't know. I've always liked being busy. Uh, I had a lot of late nights. Like I would always like kind of, cause hockey practices were at, you know, five in the morning for the women's team, stuff like that. So it was like a lot of you know, just my schedule was always so packed. So yeah, that's definitely something that stuck with me. I like being busy. Um, So I want to talk about how you ended up at McGill and how you ended up, uh, you know, choosing to live in Canada. Did you like know anyone at McGill or, or how did you make that decision? Originally, my dad had been up there for a conference and through one of the, he was at the time working at a startup as well on the side of the restaurant. And so he had um, been up for a conference and said, you know, I think you'd really like it up there and um, and convinced me to at least apply. So I applied when I had never seen it um, and I ended up getting in and so went on the college tour with my mom and uh, I was also recruited to play lacrosse there. So I got to meet the, the coach. She took us on a tour and I think just being in Montreal made me want to go there. Um, where I grew up is such a small town. It's it's a beautiful place. I would never have grown up anywhere else. But I was excited to kind of be living in a city and, and get a different kind of perspective from that. So I loved that it was in Montreal. And just um, I think the size of the university was really appealing to me. There was so much going on. There's like, I think, 30,000 students and um, just every kind of, you know, activity going on all the time. And I think just generally walking around campus, I felt like I wanted to get to know the people I was seeing. So just such an international school as well. So I just was so curious about everyone there that that's sort of what 
put me across the line. And um, yeah, so I, I decided to go kind of on the way back from Montreal on the bridge. I was like, I'm, I want to come here. <laughs> so yeah, the, that was kind of what made it. What did you think about the French part? So I actually loved, so I had taken French growing up since fourth grade. So I was pretty excited to try my French out. Although I feel like I, I don't know. I feel like I could have, um, could have, uh, pushed myself a little. I didn't take any French classes at McGill or anything, but it was fun to get to like use it a little bit. And I still think some of it sticks with me. Yeah. I certainly am not fluent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know it's hard when you're like on campus and everyone's English speaking, but right right but it was neat to be it felt very international I guess the city to me Mm -hmm. from New Hampshire (laughs) yeah to me it felt super European it did yeah yeah all the French influence but also like um yeah cobblestones you say (laughs) yeah and just like such a cool like music scene there and art scene everything you know I just think it was like a really like culturally such a fun city so yeah and I feel like it fits in really well with the McGill culture of like work hard, play hard. Definitely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And of course, like the drinking age being 18, that was yeah. uh, for an 18 year old, maybe part of the decision, <laughs> but no, I was just kidding. It's like top priority, <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun for sure. It was, um, it was fun. I met so many great people there. So like you, you were, yeah. Oh my gosh. Ampersand. Good yeah. times. That was such a fun conference and we hit so many roadblocks. And I remember like, right, like probably a week or two before the conference, we were like low on budget and you just randomly found this fund through SMU, I think. And you you just applied for it and we got it. I did. I don't remember this. Yeah. I thought you applied for the random last minute. Fun, actually. <laughs> That's really I'm pretty funny. sure it was you. Yeah. I could see this. Okay. Then- so we, yeah, that was such good startup training. I, I think for <laughs> yeah. just kind of every little roadblock and having this small team that, with no money and like having to <laughs> kind of navigate this huge university, how yeah. to get it done and get people to come. And it was an arts and science themed mm-hmm. uh, conference that we put on yeah and it was fun it brought a lot of like-minded people together you know who are interested in the you know kind of arts and science intersection and you got your degree in cognitive science Um, I did do you feel like you were able to apply that in any way to your work now definitely do yeah um I think parts of it, because part of cognitive science, I think about it a lot that it kind of did lead me to this, even though it wasn't necessarily a direct path, but cognitive science had some computer science requirements that I had to take. And that ended up leading to me kind of really being interested in how we learn computer science and how kids learn. And then a lot around just general learning science in general, how do we learn things the best and how does the brain work and, um, and I think that definitely the neuroscience classes, psychology, have definitely stuck with me. Um, I even took some behavioral economics, which I think is super applicable when you're doing a startup of, you know, how do you price things and um, how do people make decisions and things like that. So a lot of it, it's very general, but like, I think a lot of it definitely does apply to what I'm doing now. So after McGill, you, did you move directly to New York City? Um I did. uh, No, actually, I went home first for about two months, I think, because I stayed for May. I came home for June and then by July I was in New York City. So that's what it was. I came home and I waitressed and I was looking for my next I was looking for a job and I was interviewing. I was uh, applying in New York City, actually. But funny enough, in that one month when I went home. I, that's when I met Tim, my husband. So it was like the funniest thing because I was not planning to stay home at all. But like we met at that point, we were both moving to New York and it just kind of became like, and that was like, you know, I don't know, 2012. So that was a long time ago oh now, but um, best but, yeah, trip home together ever. ever since I know for a month <laughs> <laughs> and I was ready to go. I was, you know, not wanting to live at home and um, waitress. So I was really trying so hard every day, just applying, applying, interviewing everywhere, trying to get out. So yeah, damn. So you left home with a job and a future husband. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't know at the time, but yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So you ended up spending what, like a, a couple years in the city? 
I spent two years there. Okay. Um, so what, what kind of work did you end up doing in New York City? So I started in product development on the marketing team at Harry Winston, which is a global luxury watch and jewelry brand. Really, it's a jewelry brand. They started their watch brand in the 80s. And um, I was on the watch department side. So I was working directly with the timepiece department. So these luxury Swiss made watches and helping to market those and kind of um, do everything about um, product specs. And uh, it was exciting. I really loved that. And then the second job that I had there was at an advertising technology startup. So about 130 employees, they were growing quickly. And so a totally different realm, but um, really taught me a lot about uh, this tech startup world, basically, and um, growing startups. It was like such an interesting time for them that they were putting so many processes in and I was given a lot of responsibility really quickly. So it was kind of a really good juxtaposition of being at this like global brand first and learning kind of how a large brand operates globally and then going to this uh, technology startup and being able to see the inside of a tech startup. Yeah, that's really cool to have both those experiences. At what point did you know you wanted to start your own business? I started to think about it in New York City, um, mostly, well, so my parents are business owners because they have the restaurant, they've had multiple restaurants in the past too and other things. So I think I'd always kind of thought, oh, it's interesting to me, but I hadn't really thought that I would do it. Um, And I think in New York, I started really getting interested in the tech industry in general Um, started going to tech events, um, startup events. I remember going to a tech stars event at one point in New York, things like that. And I was really getting interested in it. And I took an online course as well around tech ventures and sort of part of that was you had to start like a venture and, and kind of perform this team online, things like that. And so I was starting to get interested in it. That's around when I was applying to business school and thinking, I want to go back to business. I want to go to business school. So I had never really taken business classes and anything I had done previously, but finding from working in New York that I was really interested in it and interested in how businesses grow and scale and culture, like how to keep, keep and maintain a really fantastic culture, things like that. So I I was, that's kind of what drove me to want to go to business school. And I did think I would start a business, but I thought it would be maybe I'd work for five years. I did want to transition into education technology. That's where I knew I was really interested. I wanted to do something that I felt like had a a purpose and something that I really felt impacted the world. Um, So I wanted to transition to work in ed tech was kind of my goal with business school. And then maybe five years after working in ed tech, I would start a business was kind of my plan. Mm -hmm. And then I had this idea at Babson and it just started to have enough traction that I really couldn't stop thinking about it. So I decided, you know, I'll skip the five-year plan and I'll just do this now. And like, I'm like building my network in ed tech already. So while I was at school, so it was really kind of like a a flip in the plans there, but. Yeah, it's just fast track to exactly what you want to do. Yeah. Um, Looking back, what do you think going to Babson and getting your MBA actually did for you? Because I know there's a lot of debate around like whether you actually need an MBA to start a business. What are your thoughts on that now having done both? Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually reading a lot. I remember at one point about whether you need business school or is an accelerator enough, like in starting a business today. And and there's definitely a lot of debate about it. Um, I think for me, there were a lot of things that Babson gave me that I think were really impactful on the business. One was um, just an incredible network and the ability, really, I got better at, at, building a network while I was there too. So I kind of spent the two years because I had this idea pretty early on really reaching out to lots of people around Boston, an incredible place to meet people working on startups or in the education space. So it was building network. There was the, um, I think the, the business fundamentals, like the financial modeling, things like that, that I had never really had to do. And that was very helpful to get the training in because it's ultimately what's helping me raise money now and like being able to do my own financial model and not need to rely on someone else, for instance. Um, And then I think just generally some experience around uh, there, like at least with my program, there was a lot of great work around team dynamics, working on teams, getting feedback on your own style and like your management style and practice management basically in some of the classes. And so I think that's really come and helped me 
in um, starting my company. We're now 12 employees and sort of having that training and background has been very impactful. And I just, you know, I think generally just the network was the biggest part though, is the people I met. Um, and also the time I had to, while I was there to build my business and kind of apply everything that was happening in class or that was happening in the extracurriculars and things and try to apply that to what I was doing and move it forward. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause it, it's almost like this extended incubator time where you get two years, that's like no risk, you're still in school. So you have time to experiment. And I feel like when you're a student too, and you reach out to people, they're more willing to give you their time and help out. Cause it's like, oh, you're learning. Yeah, that's definitely true. When you're a student, take advantage of that as much as you can <laughs> as like meet with everyone that you can and learn and listen. <laughs> um, so your company is called Unruly Studios. Can you give us a little overview of what you guys do? Unruly Studios is an ed tech startup that I created that we combine STEM learning with active recess style play for students in elementary and middle schools. And how we do that is our first product is Unruly Splats, which are these durable programmable floor buttons. They light up, make sound and sense when kids stomp on them. So they play active games on them. They're running back forth between them, like relay races, whack-a-mole, dance routines, obstacle courses, things like that, that you'd see at recess or on the playground. And then through a Bluetooth connected device, like a Chromebook or an iPad, they can code their own rules for new active games that they play with their classmates. So they use a block coding language based on Scratch to create their own rules and um, change the rules and make their own inventions for Splats. So we partner with schools. We're in about 800 schools so far. And the way that we work with schools is we also include ongoing training and support for the teachers so that they can create this great and experiential environment for Splats with their schools. That's yeah. amazing. Hence the name <laughs> okay. Unruly with no Unruly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'd love to go back to the birth of Unruly and the Splats. Um, how did you come up with this idea? So it's come, I feel like a lot of things have kind of in different ways led me to it, but the initial idea came to me, I was sort of thinking about, I had this idea of like an electronic playground and I was thinking those two words came to me basically and I was looking up, I'm like, has anyone done that? Because like, and I was already really interested in the, um, the learn to code space that I was seeing that like kind of STEM education for kids space. I was watching and sort of watching these new companies pop up that were doing robotics for kids or like new ways to learn to code or the scratch programming language, things like that. So I was seeing this and really excited by it. And then thinking about this electronic playground, how do you make it more like a playground, like more of a group activity, something that gets kids moving where they're all kind of participating and don't really realize that they're learning necessarily or that they're building something for that playground style play. And um, so it came from initially that. And then I think in the ed tech space, I had also been, so Tim, who's my husband now <laughs> and um, for three years, yeah, he is, um, he's a teacher. He's been a career teacher for 12 years and um, he just this year transitioned to be an administrator. But I think seeing in New York City, at least when I was first seeing his kind of from the background, the ed tech space from a teacher's perspective, how was the technology sort of being descended upon them in some ways? And then he was telling me about the tools that he really loved. And a lot of them were super focused on making teachers happy. One of them that he always talked about was Newzella, which is like one of, you know, this company that I really love and admire. And um, they've been really successful in the ed tech space growing with this teacher community. So it's sort of coming from that too, of like, how do you both teach kids coding um, and kind of engage them in this new experience, but also do it in the right way where you're working directly with teachers, empowering teachers to engage the kids with coding, even if it's their first time. So it sort of came from that. But my own reasoning was that I had learned coding when I was eight years old at school and it completely sort of changed my future because at McGill, I took a computer science class later led me to the ad tech startup and wanting to work in tech. And so a lot of it stuck with me, just at least the basics of um, knowing the logic of how computers work. It helped me in those environments. Like at the tech startup, I was working directly with the engineers in a lot of projects. And I felt like it gave me a step ahead or I could at least have this like great way of communicating 
that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't had that early exposure. So Mm -hmm. sort of like wanting to bring that forward too. Yeah. It sounds like you had some of the core ingredients from the start. Like that was so cool that you had, you know, Tim as this first almost guinea pig slash advisory panel of one <laughs> very much <laughs> to help you with that teacher perspective. And then you had your own experience of learning coding, which is kind of like what you wanted to pass on to, um, you know, the kids that you're building this for. Can you talk a bit about how you built that first prototype? So the first prototype actually was out of poster board. And I went, you know, just got for like 20 bucks, all the supplies at CVS. And I had my, I was at the time living with a friend who I'd grown up with and she was a teacher, a second grade teacher. So she was offering to let me come in at at their school in Roxbury after school and work with about five or so, five or seven kids at that point after school with this prototype. So I kind of had the whole session set up. I cut out little like squares and pretended that I was a computer. So I would have kids jump on them. Like it was a, an active experience. And then I would flip the cards and make it into a game. And I kind of incorporated some coding elements into it too. So it was super different experience, but it did give me um, enough that to say, like, I could tell that the kids were really enjoying it. Um, I could tell they were learning something from what I was doing. I mean, it was very, very bare bones. And it was just to test it out. Is this worth actually making a, a real prototype, you know, a next step prototype after the paper version? And so that gave me enough feedback and input. And even just talking with the principal of the school after that session, like I kind of told her what I was thinking about. And, you know, she was giving me feedback and sort of saying, you know, that is, we are really engaged. We want the kids to be engaged in STEM and sort of learning from her perspective. So Um, for a lot of reasons, it kind of gave me the next step to move forward. And then we worked on, I actually worked with a classmate who was connected to an engineering school to give me some advice on what supplies to get and how to do this. Obviously I'm not, I actually don't have a tech background or at least not hardware at all. Um, so I went to a local makerspace in Somerville called the Artisans Asylum with this kind of list of materials and I think I came in you know wanting to I learned how to solder there and then I put together most of the first prototype um, with an Arduino and kind of put that together there so over the course of about three months I think that one took and that was a much bigger project but I did get it you know working with lots of help from that community there Um, and then that's when I walked into an Olin College professor's office with that which at that point that prototype was like four feet by four feet it was huge and my first meeting with this professor Dr. Amon Milner I walked in with this like huge prototype and I he had worked on the scratch team at MIT which is a kid's coding language um, that's used by like 40 million kids so I kind of walked in to show him what I had built and I'm like I want to connect this to a kid's coding language so like and and then we've been working together ever since that day um but because he was like, who's this business student who spent three months building an Arduino prototype? Like, <laughs> he's like, <laughs> we need to work together. So we got, you know, kind of going from there. That's so cool. I'm just like imagining Brie, like running all over Boston. <laughs> I was in the car a lot that year, actually. Yes, because Babson's in Wellesley. And I lived in Jamaica Plain and then the Artisans Asylum is in Somerville. So it was a lot of moving around for sure. (laughs) You got the full tour of the city. (laughs) Yeah. And I had a Toyota Corolla and the four foot by four foot prototype fit in the back barely, but I could like close the trunk. So that's where it lived for the most part for like a whole year, probably until we moved on to the next version. (laughs) (laughs) So did you call them splats at that time? No, no. Okay. They were something else. And I had, I think I have to look at what book this was, but I I had been listening to a book. I think it's the hard thing about hard things. It might be that book, but it it had said like, it's really good to prototype under a different name when you're starting a startup. So like kind of a stealth mode, like you get all this feedback, totally unfiltered. And then like, when you're ready to launch, you like, then that's when you build the website and that's when you do all that. And so I was thinking of it that way. So I had slapped on a name, the night before something that I had to like say it and I so at that point it was called jump smart um which was like you know I was like oh whatever I'll change it later and like I put (laughs) it all down and then um I think the the logo at that point I made in like PowerPoint or something with a font it was it, it was nothing like it was just start you know start with something and um I still find some old like stuff 
with that on it. It's really funny to see. Um, and then we became Unruly Studios like probably two or three years later before we were ready to go to Kickstarter and do that side of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do want to talk about that Kickstarter project. What did you learn from doing that process? And looking back, do you think that was the right way for you guys to launch? Yes, I learned so much. It was like the fastest 30 days of my life. It was so, it just was like jam-packed. Um, and I actually was also at the time we, Tim and I got married in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign. Oh so God. it was a really busy time <laughs> in my life for sure. Um, so maybe that's a theme of definitely been very busy for sure. But, um, but it was, let me think the thing that I think I took away from Kickstarter that I applies to a lot of what we've done after Kickstarter at Unruly was, um, well, it was really helpful for us because we built the early community, um, a lot of the people we connected with through the Kickstarter, you know, beyond our own friends and family, that was incredible because we're still in touch with them. They're still part of kind of the unruly family and have been able to give feedback over the years and things. So I would definitely do Kickstarter again to launch something new. I, I think it was a great experience and it like it for multiple reasons. It kind of showed us there was demand from strangers online for what we were building. Um, and then it also built that early community so we could keep them in touch and like kind of keep building and keep asking questions and getting feedback. Um, I think what I learned from it the most was the importance of building momentum. And that's true for so many things in a startup, but I felt like what I, I had sort of interviewed a lot of people before doing the Kickstarter about their experiences as founders doing Kickstarters and their tips. And I think a lot of what I took from that was your campaign starts way before you launch, you know, like you almost, you need to go in running and have a, a head start. So for us, we were trying to raise 40,000 and by taking that advice, we, we were able to hit 25,000 on the first day. And, um, and that like led to our success very much. Like it was already had this momentum going in, but that was basically a lot of planning and kind of wanting to, like we told people before that we were going to open it and when, and, and kind of was really building the momentum all throughout and then keeping the momentum after day one. Um, and that's something that I think with a lot of things with startups, when you're doing something new with customers, we just did this fall fitness challenge, for instance, um, there's a lot of momentum building along the way. So I think that's really stuck with us that, or if you're fundraising in general, um, that was a good lesson for sure. Yeah, that's a great one. And who were these early users? Were they like parents who had kids, they wanted to teach coding, were they teachers or how did they find you guys? Yeah, so at that point, it was mostly all um, bought for home use. So we were selling splats in two packs, four packs, and then we had a 10 pack for education, which we, I think we sold two of those on the Kickstarter, but most of it was the two and the four packs. And um, yeah, at the beginning, the reason was we, you know, really thinking I wanted us to get to schools eventually, but I thought from, you know, knowing how schools buy and things like I thought it was going to take us a couple of years before schools would really be ready to, to um, buy a product like Slot. So I thought that'll be down the line, but we'll start with parents. We'll start at home. Um, so that's mostly who it was. But what happened is after the Kickstarter, we delivered the Kickstarter units about a year later after our campaign, which was what we had promised. And then few weeks after that we had it up on our Shopify site we had it up for sale and we started just getting school sales like overnight from all over public school in Wisconsin you know like school in Hawaii like all these places and they were all um, buying them and so then that's where we kind of realized our fit was with schools and I was so happy because it happened earlier than we thought you know we would be ready so that seems to be also a theme of, you know, things happening before you think they're ready, <laughs> but you just it's jump in. <laughs> yeah. Jump before you're ready. That's a good lesson actually. But <laughs> Yeah. Jump start. <laughs> never... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about how you built your team because you managed to find some like truly rock stars for your team. So you managed to find the designer behind the Star Wars lightsabers and G.I. Joe to come on as product advisor. How did you manage to find these rock stars and what's your kind of secret sauce for hiring an A-team? I, I love the team that we put together at Splash. And I think um, a lot of it's come from people's authentic, like what do they want? You know, why are they wanting to join 
a startup, which at the time that I met uh, Dave or Paul, it was like a three person you know, team and it was sort of so early. So um, the reason why they want to join is really important. Um, that kind of authentic passion for what we were doing. And if they like, for instance, um, I remember meeting Paul and it was through a connection. So I had said to someone, another founder, I said, I'm, we're looking for someone to build the app. Now that we've built the hardware and we've gotten the hardware ready for manufacturing, we're ready to fully build this app experience. I wanted to work with an internal team and do it our own way because I knew we would need like a lot of different special things to happen. And I wanted it to really be a fun experience. So I said something like, I'd love for it to be someone who, you know, comes from a background from Nickelodeon because that's kind of like like the kind of fun experience we're going for and he said you know I actually know someone who used to be an animator at Nickelodeon who just did this kids app with us so then he introduced me to Paul and when I met Paul we just met for coffee in New York and um, just right away like he knew what we were trying to do he wanted to be part of it he was ready to just like jump in um, and just really saw the long-term vision for it right away. So it's things like that, where you just can tell from the beginning. So we started working together at that point. Um, he started building the app. He's still in charge of the app at Unruly as our chief creative officer. And he actually brought a developer on with him who he'd previously worked with. So some of it was sort of at the early days. Um, it was definitely through the network. Um, and now we're at the point where we have like a full hiring process and um, we're much more, um, kind of doing it a little differently, but we are, I would say, still looking for that, like, why do you want to do this? And and the authentic reasons why, and you can see um, kind of how that's going to play out. And so I think that's a big piece of it. All, in the, like, some of it's kind of a gut feeling too at the beginning, because <laughs> you're, you know, so early, but you can tell after a few weeks of working with someone too, that it's really working. Um, so that's something that definitely we've, we've done over the years too, as we start with one project, at least at the early days. And then we see, okay, this is bringing us to like the next level where we wanna be. This is how we wanna be working and we're having fun. So that's usually a good sign too. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, that's so important, especially when you're strapped for resources as a small startup is like, don't go all in, but like try out some prototype projects first with someone new and see if it works. So true. And our prototypes change so much every time we would bring them out to kids. So if we had just built, like tried to like build something ready to manufacture from the beginning, we would have wasted so much money and like so much time and built this terrible thing, you know, so it, it really, we did like 24 prototypes before we actually pulled the trigger and went to manufacture, you know, and they were all really different. Like I have pictures of them all. They're, they're fun to look at different Whoa. ways. <laughs> see those. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send them to you. Yeah. Man, so manufacturing must have been a whole nother can of worms and, and learnings. Can you talk a bit about that process? Like how you found the right manufacturer, um, like what requirements they had, how you were able to fund that, um, the whole nine yards. That was such a, you know, so that was something that was new to me too. I mean, working at Harry Winston was they were not, they were doing handmade Swiss watches. Like those were made by a watchmaker in Switzerland. So it's very different. Um, so um, how I went about it, we were actually looking at all these different ways to manufacture. So we'd even talk to some big firms about, you know, product development firms and how would that work and all these different um, design firms and things like that to partner with. Um, and ultimately I went with, I met Dave Kunitz, who is our founding product advisor and ended up going with working directly with Dave, where he had done this 40 times before, um, brought products to market, manufactured them. We, we manufacture our product in China and um, knew the toy industry, which is an incredible industry at kind of simplifying things. I had learned that from one of my advisors that the toy industry has this like real specialty around like simplifying, like, do you really need that speaker or could you get away? Could you, could you do it with one led instead of 10, you know, like, and kind of just simplifying it to what's really needed to bring out a good experience for your kids or for the end user, whoever that is. So I felt like, you know, knowing that and then starting to work with Dave, it was a really good match and he knew the whole process in and out. He had a network already. So I went with that. Um, knowing that it was new for me and I learned so much from that process and it's been really, really effective that the slats have been, we've done two production runs now 
and um, they've been great. We've had like very few returns. Um, they've, they've held up really well. They're meant to be stomped on. So we had to make sure they were like super durable, which uh, we had some really, we had a lot of fun as a team testing the durability. Actually, we did a lot of like throwing them off balconies and stuff like just to try it, like see how they broke or if they broke, you know, stuff like that. So Oh my gosh, that sounds so fun. That's so interesting about toy manufacturers and they're always looking to simplify things. Is that usually like a cost consideration or more around like safety for the kids? Like what's that about? So safety is definitely, you know, number one thing for a kid's product. And that kind of is part of the process. You have to get the, any product that's going any, even to adults, like there's particular safety testing that you have to do and that the product has to pass. Um, in order to even um, sell in the U.S. or other countries with their, whatever their standards are. So that was its own, you know, you would never, never sacrifice safety on this process. But it was more about, I think of it like, and the way that we kind of thought about splats is like we could have put all these other things on it, right? Like we could have put a motion sensor and uh, something else, you know, like, and we could have probably put like, I think the first the first one we had was like a hundred LEDs and now we have, we have 12 or four, now we have 14. Sorry, I should know this. <laughs> um, but the first one was a hundred, right? So like things like that. So um, paring it down to like, what do you actually need to get this to, to allow for what our product does, which is letting kids be creative. And it turned out being way less than we originally thought because almost what you want in a create for creativity is you want like the constraint can be really helpful when you're doing something creative. So it doesn't just, you know, otherwise if you're trying to invent a new game and the thing you're trying to invent it on is let's say like, let's say it's an Xbox, like invent a new Xbox game. Like you literally have anything you can do in the, in this screen. Like there's millions of pixels you can work with. Like it's kind of like that blank paper is so blank. There's where do you start, you know? And then, with this, it's like we give you, it goes on and off. It, you can press the button and you can release the button. And it's got the 14 LEDs and it makes sounds output, you know, and that's it. And then from that, you can create like all these different games. Kids get really creative. They almost like see it, they see how it works. And then they know exactly how to take the next step and what they might build or like kind of start inventing. Yeah, it's almost like, yeah, having a more simple like starting point allows the kids to fill it in with their own creativity. Definitely. Or like even in the, a toy example, and we're, I don't really consider it like flats is definitely, we wouldn't call it a toy now, but like a good toy example of like simplifying is there was a game that came out early when we were starting flats that was called pie in the face. And it was just like, you buy yourself in the, like, it was just like so simple. And that was a super, I think it was the most popular toy that year um, from Hasbro. And so like, it's just like the fun, like, what's the simplest thing that's going to lead to family fun, you know, or that kind of thing. Did your market research involve like going around to Toys R Us and like <laughs> checking out what was in the aisles? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some of that was what led us away from the toy industry actually, mm. but it was interesting. Yeah. Going down the toy aisles or we went to toy fair a bunch of years. Um, and lots of different, you know, school setting, like lots of different observation, like watching a Lego Mindstorms class get taught, things like that, that I would do early on, uh, going to see Tim's classrooms, stuff like that. Was the decision to position you, uh, Splats as not a toy, was that more so to push it in the kind of educational and school realm? Yeah, that happened around the time right after the Kickstarter when we started seeing the, the data of just schools really are using this a lot. They are, um, they're loving the experience. We were talking to them all the time and um, that was sort of where it came from. And so from then on, we decided, you know, well, we could do both, but that's going to stretch a small team very thin. And we started noticing the product would need to change for, if we wanted to do an excellent job at both markets, we would have basically been building a completely different app for each, even though the, the splats would be the same. So we made the decision around that point that's when we raised the seed round and we just decided let's focus because we're seeing really good usage and really good traction with the education market um and there's so much room to grow and we're all really you know motivated by it we want to do it so we basically we actually made the decision just totally shut off consumer sales 
um, and only do school sales. From then on, we changed our business model. Everything came with that, but it was really about focusing and that's been the best decision we've made. It's been, um, it's really, really, people had told me that how important it is for startups to focus, but from doing that, I realized why. So now that the team is growing and you guys are 12 people now, which is amazing to see, um, how do you manage your time? And um, I'm guessing like you want to, you know, be able to oversee everything that's going on, but obviously, you know, there's only so much time in the world and you got to delegate. So how much are you involved in the tactics day to day? um, And how do you typically spend your day slash week as the founder CEO? It's a great question. So I feel like every week is still really different. It's hard to get a routine down, but I try to do, um, I've, I've definitely noticed at least in the last two years that I've become a morning person and getting like any work done that I need to do and kind of concentrate on, I'm able to do in the morning because I have a lot of different meetings throughout the day. Um, and then in terms of delegating, it's just, we're really big at Unruly about owning projects and having ownership over your own work. Um, and so it's, it's really become a lesson in like being super clear from the beginning of let's say a quarter or one particularly big project of who owns what, what the deadlines are, like what the goal is of that quarter or what the goal is of that year. And so we've spent a lot more time doing that. And that saves us time because we then know who, who owns what and everyone is kind of things are kind of delegated from the beginning. And then it's just about us working as a team to get it done. So I think that's what's really helped is being clear about what we're trying to get done and what the focus is, you know, what the three things we're doing that quarter are, not the 12 million. And that's always hard for us because we have a lot on it. As you know, I like to like pack my schedule. So it's (laughs) always a lesson in kind of like paring down the list of, of things so that we can do a really great job at everything. Have you seen that video of Steve Jobs and prioritization? It's, no, but um, I would like to. <laughs> yeah, you should watch it. Um, okay. Yeah, long story short, he brings his executive team into a room for like the following years, like annual planning. And he has them like just spend the day coming up with a, a plan, a strategic plan. And so he leaves and then comes back at the end of the day and they're like, all right, next year, we're going to focus on these 10 things. And he goes up to the list and he crosses off number 10, nine, eight, so pretty <laughs> much everything except for number one he's like all right number one this is our focus next year yeah that is perfect that's exactly what (laughs) well we're doing sort of an online version of that next week so I'll make sure to I'll make sure to incorporate that (laughs) yeah channel your inner Steve Jobs what do you think I mean obviously there's so many challenges like every day as a founder but looking back what would you say is has been the biggest challenge so far I think the big, one of the biggest challenges, um, is especially for the early, early days is like, you kind of, as a founder, like you, you know what you want it to be and like that future that you want and you have the vision in your head, but then actually communicating that to people around you early on is so hard. Um, so I feel like that was probably one of the biggest challenges and every year it grows closer, like what you're building grows closer and closer to what's in your head. And it became, like, I feel like it's gotten easier to tell that story over the years, but in the early days, that's really hard to communicate, you know, why the, per, you know, the, that first four foot by four foot uh, prototype that I had was going to lead to like what we're doing today. And in my head, like it, I could see it, but it was very hard to like communicate and show people what, what we were like, that we were capable and that, you know, kind of that whole story and like that we were going to build this incredible team and that why that would happen. So um, it's hard because it hasn't happened yet. So you're very much telling like a future story that doesn't exist. And especially when it's something really different, like splats, it's not like we were building a better mousetrap in a, you know some industry that already had a product like that. Like this was a really different thing. And so that's, that's definitely always a challenge from the beginning, but it's, it's been really fun now to have, you know, what we've done and kind of every year, just like these new things that we're doing and and making that story come to life. 
Yeah, that's such a cool way to think about it. And I bet doubly hard because you're not only creating something completely new and a new category, it's also hardware. And so it takes way longer time scales than just mm-hmm. a software SaaS product that you can put up in like a prototype in, in a day or, or two. Um, Definitely. There's yeah. a great, one of my favorite quotes is, I don't know if you've heard the, the Ira Glass quote about how he's talking about when people are first starting out in their careers in, he's talking about like a creative industry, they have really great taste. And so they know what they want it to look like, but then they'll start writing or maybe be like, and they, it never lives up to like that ultimate vision for them. And so the trick is he's like, everyone successful in my industry that I know has just gotten over that hump and it takes years. You have to keep putting out, you have to do like, um, in, his, in his case, it's radio and like, you have to do segments and keep going. Um, but I, I think that was a really good way of putting it, of kind of like get it, letting your actual output catch up with your taste of like where you want it to be. I love I that. Love that. It's like, it's like this painting almost or something. Yeah. And it starts out super blurry. It's kind of a mess. And then <laughs> it comes into focus like 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I bet that's probably been a struggle for you with, you know, pitching this to investors too. It's like, how do you paint that vision for them? And how do you paint that ROI too, without them even seeing the product yet and being mm-hmm. able to see the results? Um, what's been the fundraising process like for you? So that's been one of the bigger, you know, definitely a challenge as well. And I think you definitely hit it with, with how kind of telling that story is, is always hard, especially early when it's something where I'm a first time founder, I haven't necessarily brought a hardware product product to market before. So kind of having to convince people I can do it. And obviously bringing Dave on for that was great because he'd done it 40 times. So things like that can be helpful of building your team. Like you always want to be hiring, uh, people who are, you know, have different experiences and, and kind of pull that into the story. Curious to hear, cause I mean, I know like it's hard enough raising money within mm-hmm. ed tech, like mm-hmm. within education, there just like, isn't a lot of money, yeah. um, but also like being a woman and trying to raise, like that's especially hard. Do you think that's been, that's like played a role in your fundraising journey or, or was it more about like the hardware piece and, and being able to tell the story? No, I do think that that has played a role and, and like kind of, I had a few straight, right. Like going in, I had, I was a woman, but I also had an ed tech startup, which wasn't super popular at the time, actually through COVID a lot more funding has been going to ed tech, but that's Mm. like only this year. And then hardware people, you know, investors really don't like investing in hardware. Um, You know, that's part of what And there's a reason. And the reason is one of the reasons why we changed our business model actually away from like a hardware sale to something that was ongoing and more similar to SaaS, because it isn't a great business model in a lot of ways, hardware sales alone. Um, And so I've learned a lot of that through the process. But I think that, you know, what I've been able to do to get around that and to kind of get ahead of it is um, building, first of all, built relationships. Even while I was at Babson, I met some of our investors who invested maybe after the Kickstarter two years later, I met at Babson. And so I was sort of building relationships and keeping them in touch with what we were doing. And it's definitely driven me to be more data-driven with everything that we're doing at Unruly and kind of have the numbers and know the numbers, understand them, be able to communicate with numbers, our story, that's been, you know, and build a really solid business ultimately and like build that based on solid metrics, a, a super solid business model. And that's sort of what it's taught me to do is like really come back to the numbers, build the relationships over time and then continue to communicate. So I had have had a, an email list going for probably since Babson of people who have been interested in what we were doing and just keep them posted about, you know, what we had done, what we, what our goals were. And then when we hit those goals and kind of set our milestones and then go hit them again. And then by that point, even though I'm a first time founder, these, you know, investors that I'd been getting to know had a track record for us. Um, We were building it as we built the company. So that was sort of where I was able to um, kind of get around those various roadblocks. Were there investors that, you know, initially said no, and then later on you went back to them with the numbers? Yeah, a lot, a lot of investors said no initially when we were just, you know, 
early and had the prototypes with the wires on them and stuff. And I was like telling them what we're going to do. And then we start doing, we just kept moving regardless of if we were, we had no money, we kept moving. And then, um, along the way, they've been like, wow, you said you were going to do that and you did it. And they'll invest at that point. And so just kept good relationships with everyone, even if it was a no, like, um, didn't take that personally. Like it, it was just kind of not right now. And, and we actually did have that happen a lot. Wow. I mean, something that just strikes me so much knowing you as a person, but also in this conversation is just how you're able to just keep moving no matter what, like the world throws all these things at you, but you just keep (laughs) on running. How do you, how do you do that? Like, where do you think that inner strength or persistence or motivation comes from? I think somewhat from athletics, maybe of just like, like, I've been a runner, I've run a few marathons. And I think it's the same feeling you have when you're like, at mile 20 of a marathon of just, this is awful. I feel like I want to stop. And then you have to just keep going. And it's, it's definitely a mindset. Um, I think uh, maybe parts of kind of my early days doing gymnastics taught me that or the different sports that I did growing up in an entrepreneurial family too I think I saw my parents do this all the time and kind of just keep moving through really hard times like the financial crisis which at that point was such a bad impact on restaurants and even now like what's happening this year and and how they've been able to adapt Um, I've seen them do this my whole life so I think that's been a big inspiration and something that by seeing it firsthand I kind of had some of those like muscles forming I guess I think it's a muscle. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, especially like physically with running a marathon. That's like you're literally building muscle, but probably more important is the mindset. What's next for you and Unruly Studios? This year has been a year where we've, you know, of course, pivoted to meet what what we needed to do for our schools for virtual learning and things like that. So um, we've built some really strong relationships with our schools through previous to this year, but also through this year. Um, So I think that there's just so many different ways that we can expand those relationships and really provide what they need. And so we're starting to kind of have this community forming um, amongst our schools and our school partners. And so recently this month, we just did this fall fitness challenge. We had our schools actually compete against each other online, like from across the country um, and across Canada. We're available in Canada too. So it was like the first time we've done that. We're going to do many more. It was a lot of fun and got like kind of really got some good competition going and kind of some chirping from each school, like things like that. So we were getting them together and uh, we'll definitely do more of that. And um, yeah, lots of new things in the pipeline in terms of new products, new, um, new software updates, and ultimately just more ways that we can be a better partner to our schools. I want to see you guys do like an unruly Olympics one day. <laughs> oh, yes, we had a school. They called it the Splat Olympics. <laughs> they did. Yes. Somerville did. Oh they my did God. the Splat Olympics. <laughs> yes. I want to do. I know. I see a ninja warrior in our future Ooh. as well someday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, thank you so much, Bree, for coming on the show. This has been amazing. And you are always an inspiration to me. Thank you for having me, Jane. I think we need a Jane episode soon too. (laughs) I want to (laughs) hear. Thank you so much to Brie for coming on the show and note taken. I might just do a story time one of these days. You can learn more about Brienne's company at unrulysplats.com or follow unruly underscore studios on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to follow Inside Out with Jane on Instagram for photos and extras. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in and see you next Tuesday.